Let's take our Bibles this morning, go to Luke chapter number 10. Luke chapter number 10, when you find that, if you're physically able, and of course I would invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter number 10, if you're a guest with us this morning, we're in the middle of a series going through the book of Luke. And we're about 35, 40 messages in already, and just in chapter number 10. And we come this morning to a familiar portion of Scripture that I believe that most everybody in this room, and even if you haven't been in church very much in your life, you'll recognize this story. And we want to see a familiar story, but not just see it this morning. We want to see what it means and how it applies to our life and why it's here. And so let's look at Luke chapter number 10, and we're going to begin in verse number 25. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said, Jesus, said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance... There came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, and likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion on him, and he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he, the certain lawyer, said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. God, we come before you this morning desiring that you would speak to us. I have no confidence in my ability. Lord, I have full confidence in what your spirit can do in this place today. And so I ask that 
you would just do the work in every heart and life exactly as you see fit. Bringing reproof where reproof is needed, bringing correction where correction is needed, bringing exhortation where that is needed. And God, maybe most of all, bringing salvation where that is needed. If there's one here, God, that doesn't have a personal relationship with you, maybe there's someone here that's trusting in religion or good works or the fact that, uh, Lord, who their family is, as the reason why they're saved, I pray that you would bring them under the conviction and under the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ today. We're going to give this service to you and ask that you would bless it as only you can and that your perfect work would be done in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. It's 3.20 a.m. on March 13th. 1964, 28-year-old young lady by the name of Kitty Genovese was returning to her home in a nice middle-class area of Queens, New York. She parked her car on a nearby lot, turned off the lights, locked her car, and started walking to her second floor apartment that was approximately 35 yards away from where she parked her car. She got as far as a street light when suddenly a man grabbed her. She screamed. She screamed loud. Lights began to come on on the 10th floor apartment building nearby. She yelled as loudly as she could, He stabbed me. Please help me. Windows opened and began to open even more so in the apartment building. And finally, one man's voice cried out of the window, Hey, leave that girl alone. The attacker looked up, shrugged, and then walked down the street. Miss Genevieve struggled to get to her feet. Lights went back off in the apartments. And as soon as they did, the attacker came back, and he stabbed her again. She again cried, this time saying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And again the lights came on, and windows opened in many of the nearby apartments. The assailant, seeing the lights, left, got into his car, and he drove away. Miss Genevieve staggered to her feet as a city bus drove by. It was now 3.35 a.m. But the attacker returned for a third time. He found her in the doorway of the apartment building at the foot of the stairs where he stabbed her a third time, this time with fatal consequence. It was 3.50 a.m., the police report says, when they received their first call. They responded quickly. In fact, they were there on the scene within two minutes of the call. But sadly, Miss Genovese was already dead. Kitty Genovese was a name that would become symbolic in the public mind for the dark side of national character. 
It would stand for Americans who were too indifferent or too frightened or or possibly too self-absorbed to get involved in helping another fellow human being who was in dire trouble. The detectives investigated the murder, and they discovered that no fewer than 38 of her neighbors had witnessed at least one of the killer's three attacks, but none had come to her aid, and none of those 38 called the police. The one call made to the police came after Miss Genovese was already dead. When that happened, of course, many thought the incident shocking, bizarre, left them scratching their head. This isn't the way that people act. This isn't the way that normal people act. And the common question that, that, that many ask in those days was this, what was wrong with those people anyway? How could they not help? Today's text that we read, it's the first century equivalent. It's found in Luke chapter number 10. We read the story. It's a very familiar story, one that we refer to as the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's told in response to a question that had been asked to Jesus by a Jewish lawyer. In the beginning, in verse number, the verse number 25, this lawyer, a certain lawyer stands up and he tempts him and he asks this question, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We are told that this man was a lawyer again. But he's not the kind of lawyer that you might think of. He didn't go into court or he didn't work in civil and criminal cases. No, by the word lawyer here, it means he was an expert in the Old Testament law and an Old Testament scholar. His work was within the realm of the law. And so the question that was asked by this man who had spent his life focusing on the law and on the, the scriptures was a good question, an important question. One that, that should burn and does burn in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever lived. And it's this, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Here's what he's basically asking. What do I need to do to be saved? This is the most important question ever. It's the most important question that anybody could ever ask. It's the most important question you could ask. If you don't know for sure today that you are saved, the, the, the main question that you should be asking right now in your life is not where are we going to lunch after this. It's not what are we going to do this week or how busy am I this week. The main question you should be asking is what do I need to do to be saved? When he asks this question about eternal life, in his mind anyways, he he was asking Jesus, he was thinking along these lines as he asked Jesus, what what are the essential requirements in the law? Here I am, I'm an expert at the law. I spend my whole life in the law and studying the law. So so when it comes to the law, what's what's the essential requirements? What's the things that I should be focusing in on and doing so that I can have eternal life? It reminds me of the question of the rich young ruler in Matthew. And he's asked, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? It's a very similar line of thought here. I can see Jesus smiling as he throws the question back at the lawyer's face. 
In verse number 26, Jesus said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? Jesus throws it back on him and says, Hey, you're the expert, buddy. You spent your whole life as a lawyer working in the law and teaching others the law. Why don't you answer the question, what do you read? How do you read that it would be? And so in verse 27, the lawyer answers Jesus. He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. I love Jesus' response in verse number 28. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do and thou shalt live. Jesus asks the question. The man gives the answer and Jesus responds to his answer. And his answer is, or his response is basically this. Hey, that's a good answer. Now go do it. Jesus, some are troubled by this answer. Now, time out. We need to understand that Jesus is not saying that he could be saved by doing the law. Jesus isn't saying that. That would go contrary to the rest of the word of God. He is reminding the man of what the law says. And the law requires not only that one do their very best to keep the law, but that one keep it perfectly. The law must be kept without omissions. It must be kept without failures. So to be justified under the law, one must be perfect. And so here's what Jesus is doing. He's throwing it back at this lawyer because he wants this lawyer to see that the law cannot save anybody because nobody can keep the law perfectly. And he's going to use this illustration to help this man to see how imperfect he is. See, the Bible clearly tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. And, and so what Jesus is doing in telling this man, go and do it, he's saying to him, I'm going to give you a task to do that you're going to find impossible to do. I'm going to help you see that you have a beam in your eye while you're walking around thinking as a lawyer that you are perfectly keeping the law. You're going to soon realize you are anything but keeping the law. Now, the Old Testament lawyer, he does what many would do. I think he thought of himself as perfect, sinless, righteous. What's the essential in the law? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy mind, thy strength. Love him with everything in you. And I think in this lawyer's mind, as he evaluated himself, he thought, I do this. I give you freedom, Jesus, to, to go ahead and evaluate my life because you're going to find that I love God. I love him with everything within me. And he did, I believe, and he meant it. But then he said, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And in his mind, he thought, I, I do that pretty good too. And he's thinking of all of his neighbors and all the people that he might come across each and every day. And he's thinking to himself, not only do I love God, but I do a really good job loving other people. But then he said, who is my neighbor? I, I think he wanted, again, Jesus to realize what a good man he was. What a righteous man he was. The, the Bible, in fact, says he was willing, rather, to justify himself. His desire was to justify himself. His desire was for Jesus to look at him and say, you know, you are a really good guy. You love God. You love others. You, you really are good. And I think he, he, is, he is instigating conversation with Jesus because he wants Jesus to see how great he is. He wants to make himself seem right. 
in his relationship with God and with others. But here's the problem. The lawyer was measuring himself against both commands, and he he figured that he met them both well. And in keeping the second, he thought, I do a good job as long as you define neighbor as I define neighbor. See, here's the problem. We are often like the lawyer and that we try to reduce God's commands to something we can live with. We would like to believe that loving my neighbor means this. It means loving people who love me or at least loving people who are lovable. Loving my neighbor thereby comes to mean doing nice things for people who will probably do nice things for me in return. And so the same could be said for us today. If I ask you, do you love God? Most everybody in here would say, I absolutely love God. Do you love your neighbor? I absolutely love my neighbor because we're thinking of all the people around us that we love and that love us, that we do nice things for, and they do nice things for us. But Jesus is going to define neighbor in a completely different way. I find it interesting that at no point is this called a parable. Jesus doesn't refer to this as a parable. I don't know, but it could be that it was a report of an actual occurrence. Not that much unlike the first century Kitty Genovese story. The journey from Jericho to Jerusalem was well known for its danger. It was very steep and, and treacherous. Jerusalem sets at about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho sets below it at about 700 feet below sea level. 17 miles is what separates Jerusalem from Jericho. So you can see it would have been a very steep climb up to Jerusalem and a very steep climb coming down from Jerusalem, kind of a mountainous area. And it would have been very dangerous because there would have been many places for robbers to hide. In fact, this road, this this stretch of road between Jerusalem and Jericho was so bad that, that it got the name and the, the, the thing that people would call it would be this, the way of blood, the way of blood. So it's a believable story, no doubt. And those that were listening would understand it. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take this story and I want to point out from this story some basic lessons that I believe Jesus teaches us about compassion. I believe some things that he wants to teach us about our neighbors and true love and a love that is beyond us. Number one, I want you to see this this morning, that compassion, true, God-given, neighborly compassion, it's based on need, not on worth. It's based on need, not on worth. Look at verse 30. Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Our compassion is to be driven not by worth of the recipient, but by the need of the recipient. Here's what jumped out at me at the beginning of this story. Jesus just simply says, a certain man. Today, we would probably say it this way. Well, you know, some guy, somebody we don't know, somebody that's not important to us, just a a some person. And here's the problem with this guy. He's robbed, he's wounded, and he's left on the side of the road half dead. His need, need helps. He needs help in the absolute worst of ways. 
And so here's this unknown, this certain guy, this some guy, this unknown victim, and he's laying beside the road. And, and as he does so, a series of three individuals come along the way. The first passerby is introduced in verse 31. By chance, there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest, a man of God. He came down the road. When he, when he saw this man, it wasn't that he missed him. It wasn't that he didn't see him, that he didn't recognize the need. He saw the man. Then the Bible says he crossed to the other side of the road. He, he went as far away as he, as possible to be able to stay on the road away from this man. And he just continued down the road. He continued on his journey. Now, now this, this priest, some would excuse because they say that he didn't want to go and be near this man. This man might have been dead. And, and if he would have touched a dead man, it would have made him ceremonially unclean. But in both cases of the priest and the Levite, the Bible's very descriptive and the Bible doesn't mince words. It's very descriptive that he came down. They came down on their journey. In other words, they had been at Jerusalem. So this priest has already kept and done all of his priestly duties, and now he's coming down. He's headed back home. And so to be ceremonially unclean is not something he would need to be concerned with. This is probably the most shocking aspect of this parable as I read it. The priest, he was considered the holiest person there was among the Jews. Again, he, he was taught the scriptures he was entrusted with offering sacrifices for the sins of people. He may have just been doing that. He was allowed to go further into the temple than any regular person would ever be allowed to go. If anyone was going to reflect the character of God, if anybody was going to show compassion, you would think it would be this holy man of God. But he doesn't. Can I, can I just stop here and say it's sad? Sometimes the rudest, meanest people are people of God. It's a sad deal when waiters and waitresses all over Lubbock dread Sunday because they know church people are going to leave and come to their restaurant and they're the rudest people and the worst tippers that there is in Lubbock. It's a sad deal. It's a sad testimony for all of us. I can see this priest. He's coming down the road. He sees this individual that's over here and maybe he hears him and he's crying, he's moaning, he's hurting and he's gasping. And this priest sticks his nose in the air and he's like, well, yeah, that's a problem, but I'm a priest. I'm an important person. I, I, I don't mess with that type of situation. That's below me. Somebody else needs to deal with that individual, not me. I'm a priest. I'm a holy man. I'm a man of God. I'm too important for such a task as that. I mean, that's not what I call was called to do. With his nose in the air, he's thinking his worth was greater than that man's worth. Let someone of lesser worth, someone that's not as important as me, Somebody who has more time than me. Somebody who's not as busy as me. Let them take care of him. I'm not going to do it. It might have been that he was able to get a good enough look to, to recognize that it was nobody he knew. If it was somebody he knew, maybe he would have helped and maybe it would have been worth his time. But because it was nobody that he knew, it wasn't worth his time and effort for someone he had never met and somebody that couldn't pay him back. 
What a sad deal. Instead of, instead of looking at the man and seeing his desperate condition and his desperate need, he looked at his worth and said, not worth it. The second passerby is introduced in 32. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, he came and looked. Again, we're talking with the spiritual man, somebody of, of supreme lineage. He came. He looked on him. And he passed by on the other side. We'll give, we'll give the Levite a little bit of credit. At least he went over and looked at the man. At least he crossed to the side of the road and saw him there in that ditch and thought, I'll take, I'll take a look. And perhaps it was no more than the current practice of rubbernecking. He just wanted to see what was going on at the scene of the accident. And when he realized what had happened, he looked down at the man. He goes back to the other side of the road and he continues on his way. Again, perhaps this Levite was evaluating the situation, seeing what helping the man would involve. Well, I'll see. If he's, if, he's not, if he's not hurt too bad, maybe I can help. Maybe there's a little something I can do. But when he gets over to the man and he sees this man is all beat up, he's half dead. I mean, this is going to be quite a project to try to help this man. And it may not even end up being that he can help him. He might die anyway. So what's the point of trying to help him? So he decides because of the awful shape of the man. I just don't think I can do anything to help. It's going to be more work than it's worth, and he might die anyways. So like the kitty Genevieve's neighbors, the first two passerbys probably just didn't want to get involved. It wasn't worth it for them. They didn't want any trouble. I don't believe that the priest and the Levite were monsters. I believe they were regular people, nice, ordinary people. I believe they loved their family and they tried their best to get by in this world. But just like the witnesses in Kitty's murder, they saw the need. They did not, did not do anything about it. Both of these men, they saw the man, but they ignored the need. These two religious professionals were caught up in a lifeless religion. I believe they were playing church, but they certainly wasn't going to let it affect them outside of the church building. Compassion is based on need and not on worth. But it's also compassion then. If that's not compassion, what is compassion? Here's what compassion is. Compassion is is something that, that, that feels something. Compassion feels something. Look at verse number 33. We read, But a certain Samaritan... As he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, I like this. If you highlight in your Bible, if you underline in your Bible, underline these words. He had compassion on him. It would have been a great thing for Jesus to just tell this story about anybody. To, to just say, hey, there, there was a certain man and, and, and he came by and he found this man that was in an awful position and he, he had such great need and he stopped and he helped him. And, and people would have applauded this ordinary man. But, but here's what is surprising. It's not a Jew helping a Jew. But what we're going to find is this is a Samaritan helping a Jew who had been ignored by his fellow Jews. Given the mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritan, it would have been far more likely to have expected the Samaritan to finish the guy off than to help him. Today we call this story the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, the very phrase, Good 
Samaritan has become a part of our common language. Many in this room, all the staff and some others, we have an insurance company, Good Samaritan Insurance. Brothers helping brothers. Families, Christian families helping Christian families. It's become part of our common language. But but you understand in this day, in the culture in which this was being written, when Jesus was telling us this story, that, that this would have not been a phrase in use by anybody, especially by a Jew. The, the Jews couldn't have considered ever putting the word good and Samaritan in the same sentence. But yet Jesus did. And, and the passage says that when he saw him, he had compassion. The, the Greek word used here for compassion, I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it is incredibly long and difficult to say. And as much as I practiced it, I know I won't say it right. But just suffice it to say, look it up for yourself this afternoon. That word compassion, it's a very vivid one. And it, it, it means at the very depth of its meaning, it refers to the intestines. It refers to the bowels of an individual. So, so you read that word compassion and I think, well, that's kind of gross. What's up with that word? would be equivalent of what we would say in our day and age, a gut feeling. Something something touches us deep down. It's just a gut feeling I have. And, and here's the reality. The Samaritan saw the same pitiful man lying in agony beside the road. And his, here, here's what the Bible's telling us. His heart churned within him so that he could not pass by without helping. That's the compassion that affects us. It stirs us. It troubles us. He, he, he looked down at that man and there's something in his gut that just wouldn't let him walk away. It's something in his gut that would have kept him awake at night if he would have just passed on by. When the Samaritan looked at that suffering man lying half died on, half dead on the side of the road, something happened deep down inside of him. Something that made it impossible for him to walk away. He didn't decide to help this guy on the basis of how worthy he was. He helped him because deep down he knew how needy this man was. Now, there's not a logical reason for the Samaritan to rearrange his plans or to spend his money to help an enemy in need. All of the people who passed by this injured man by the, passed, passed this injured man by the Samaritan had the least reason to help. He, he was no account in the, in the Jewish society before this incident and his good deeds not going to change the way that people viewed him. In fact, the man that he's helping probably wouldn't even have cared that much. But nonetheless, it affected him and it affected him deeply. And that, that, that deep feeling It caused him to do something. 34, compassion does something. It not only feels something, but it does something. Look at verse number 34. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and he set him on his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. This Samaritan, he he doesn't pass by on the other side. He he doesn't take a look and keep going. No, he moves toward the injured man. You must move toward people to express compassion in order to build relationships. It's not something that just mystically happens. If you're going to help people, if you're going to minister to people, if you're going to show compassion on people, it's going to take a concentrated effort. It's not often not convenient. 
But I don't want you to forget that the Samaritan is moving towards somebody again who, if he was conscious, would despise him. Someone who would no doubt would not do the very same thing for him if the situations were reversed. But it didn't matter because there's something in this man that caused him to feel deeply. Jesus details again in verse number 34, six verbs to show how active this man's compassion was. Again, if you underline in your Bible, just underline those statements. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. He set him on his own beast. He brought him to an end. He took care of him. In every one of his acts, he's demonstrating compassion as he responds to it practically, timelessly, and in in an unselfish way. He put him on his own donkey, the Bible says, which means that the Samaritan had to walk the remainder of the way. It's important to recognize that he took time to care for him. Listen, we may not be able to help everywhere, We may not be able to help everyone, but we can help somewhere and try to do a meaningful work for someone. Does something. Time out. Just stop right here. We're moving. Just got a couple more points. Uh, This is the beauty of you having the notes these days. You know when we're about to be done. Some of you are like, oh, man, he's only got two more. Three down. Let's see. That's about seven minutes of one. We're, We're 14 minutes and we're done eating. So many times... We see the need. So many times we feel the, the importance of doing something, but we never move from those feelings to actions. We know. I'll get around to it. We have our excuses. Just like the priest and the Levite had excuses. If he wasn't in such a bad situation, I would help him. If I wasn't so important, I would help him. If I wasn't so busy, I would help him. We have all of these excuses. If it was a different time, if the economy was better, if, if I had more time, if I knew all the answers, if I knew how to, to, to talk to people, if I, if I knew how, how more about the word of God, I would teach a class, I would help here, I would do this. And we know what we need to know and we know there's a need, but to move from from the feeling to the action is so many times where people get messed up. They just won't do it because that's the point where you have to personally get involved. Verse number 35, here's something else we learn about compassion. It costs something. It costs something. On the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence. He gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. This man went the extra mile. He took this man to an inn. He saw that the innkeeper looked out for the recovering of the uh, recovery of the victim. But he also promised that he would return and fully reimburse the innkeeper of any additional expenses that incurred in caring for this man. He left money to take care of this man's need, and he put no limit on how much he would spend to see that this wounded man was taken care of. There is nothing more the Samaritan could have done to show his compassion to this man. See, there are no limits. There should be no limits on what we will give for our Father. There should be no limits on what we should give to minister to others. How many of you understand today when I say that there are areas of our life that that we don't set a lot of limits on? I don't know this, but I've seen it in some of your lives, and I hope to know it sooner rather than later. But there's not a lot of limits that you grandparents put on your grandkids. 
You will go to any length to spoil them, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what mom and dad think. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. You will go to any length to spoil your grandkids. Some of you will go to any length to support your hobbies. We'll go to any length to to do things that we want to do. We'll go to any length to, to buy World Series tickets. I don't think anybody in here did that, but... I can promise you, I looked at how much they were and considered it until I saw how much they were. But there was evidently no difficulty filling the stadium with people that were willing to pay the premium prices. Why? Because there's no limits. I'm not going to limit. This doesn't come around. We're Rangers fans. 62 years, this doesn't come around very often. I'll pay whatever to go and watch a World Series game. But yet when it comes to God, it's amazing how many limits we have. And this man said, I'm not going to limit the cost. Whatever it takes to minister and to make a difference in this individual's life, I'm willing to do so. Whatever it is. He doesn't say, well, here's a budget. Here's kind of what I'm thinking. I'm going to leave. And as long as it... No, he said, whatever it is that you need when I come back, I'll repay Number five, compassion demonstrates, and this is where we ultimately want to get to, our relationship to God. Compassion demonstrates our relationship to God. At the conclusion of his story, Jesus asked the lawyer one additional question in verse number 36. He says, which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Which one of these? I don't know how you read this story, but I read it this way. I see the lawyer kind of struggling here. He's choking on his words because he can't bring himself to say the word Samaritan because he has such hatred for the Samaritans. So in verse 37, all he does is he responds, I suppose, I'm not going to say the word Samaritan, but I'll agree that he that showed mercy on him. And for the second time in this series of verses, Jesus tells this man to do something in order to inherit eternal life. When this verse continues with Jesus saying unto him, go and do thou likewise. Now time out. Why does Jesus say that? Why would Jesus tell that man that? If that man goes and he loves a Samaritan, is that going to get him heaven? If he goes and he does some works and good works toward other people, is that going to get him to heaven? No, that's not it. So why was Jesus telling him that? Because Jesus was bringing this individual, this lawyer, to a place where he realized that what he was being asked to do was greater than what he had the ability to do. He wanted this man to realize, I can't do that. You want me to love my kids? I can love my kids. You want me to love my family? I'll love my family. You want me to love those people I go to the the temple with? I, I can love them. You want me to love those people that live next to me? I can love them. You want me to love an Astros fan? I can't. Well, I'll try really hard to do that. But you want me to love a Samaritan? That's beyond me. I can't do that. I can't. And that was the point. No, you can't. 
But when you understand my love and when you accept my love and you understand who it is that's talking to you and the love that I'm about to manifest to the whole world and show the whole world and you accept that love, then I can love people through you. But you need to realize you can't do it. And therefore you're lost and you need a savior. So the lawyer is left without any excuses. Without any vindication. Second question that the lawyer has had asked was, who was my neighbor? But can you see as he walked away, the question has now been turned on him. And now he's asking this, what kind of neighbor am I? What kind of neighbor am I? First John 3, 16 and 18 is one of the most convicting passages in the Bible. I'm not going to make you turn there, but listen really closely. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our life for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion on him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Did you catch that? He said, if you see this need and you don't do anything about it, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How dwelleth the love of God in you? That's not your love. You will never be able to generate that type of love. Time out. Every one of you stop right now and think of that one person, that one group, that that one people group or whoever it might be that you just have the most difficult time getting along with. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody in politics and it's just the, the very name just causes the, the skin on the back of your neck to crawl. How are you going to love them? After all they've done to you and all the ways they've hurt you and harmed you, how are you going to possibly love them? The answer is you're not. But when the love of God dwells in you, when it's God's love flowing through you, then you can, my friend. And thus you need a Savior. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue. Let us not just talk about it. Let us not just see the need and be moved within, but in deed and in truth. James, in his practical principles of for living the Christian life, he says it this way, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Yeah, that's going to be real helpful. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? There is no profit. So here's what Christ-like compassion does. It demonstrates the type of relationship you have with God. It demonstrates, number one, whether you even have a relationship with God. You understand until you know the love of God, you'll never be able to demonstrate the love of God. Until you know His love and have felt His love and experienced His love, you'll never be able to give that love. 
But number two, it shows not only whether you know him, but it shows how good your relationship with him is. If you are not walking with him, if the spirit of God is not dwelling within you and and, in the fact that the fruit of his spirit is coming out in your life, you are going to struggle with this. But when you are a spirit-led Christian and his fruit is being seen in your life, then the love of God will be flowing through you. In this story, Jesus separates the person who has a real relationship with God with those that are just merely religious. We saw what religious folks did. They saw the man bruised and battered on the side of the road. And they just kept walking. In fact, it says they crossed the street to get as far away from that need as they could and kept walking. But evidently, this Samaritan, driven by the love of Christ, could not help but see the need and do something. Two questions and we're done. Christian, when was the last time you allowed the situations of others to affect you in such a way that you were moved to action? When was the last time you you looked at a lost person and you were so stirred and moved within that you didn't just feel sorry because they didn't know Christ, but you had to go and give them a track. You had to talk to them about the Lord. You had to go encourage them. When was the last time you were at work and that person who's so difficult to, to work with, but you were so moved because they didn't have Christ in their heart that you was willing to do something for them and act upon that? When was the last time that happened? Because the answer to that question really in reality is is, is going to show how your walk with God is. Because if the Spirit of God is in control of your life, it will happen frequently. Number two, perhaps there's somebody here today and you've identified with this man's question. What must I do to go to heaven? What must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to have eternal life? Let me tell you, the answer is the same. You can't. No more than a person can love the unlovable. You can't save yourself. So stop trying to inherit heaven by doing. Why don't you today inherit heaven by trusting? Trust that Jesus has already paid the penalty of your sin. And that if you'll just accept him... He'll come into your life and He'll save you. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. I'm done and I don't have time, but I could preach this entire message all over again, showing you how everything we saw in this good Samaritan, we see in the person of Jesus Christ and the way that He loves you. Every head bowed, every eye closed.